Welcome to Biteside. I am Seamus Byrne, and joining me is Nick Healy. Nick, how are you? I'm well, Seamus. How are you? Yeah, doing all right. You know, plowing through another week. Uh, (laughs) Did you actually do anything that felt vaguely normal last long weekend? Because we managed to actually do a few things as the, you know, as the lockdown starts to ease up a little bit. We managed to do a few things that felt human, like seeing other people. Uh, how about you? Yeah, look, not not particularly, unfortunately, but there was just a, a bit of stuff going on last weekend. Oh, but yeah. it is interesting to see how we are how we're adjusting to this new world. Like I have gone to the pub recently and I'd honestly thought it was going to be an experience bordering on the numinous. I thought this was going to be just a, yeah, angelic choirs arriving with my uh, freshly poured beer. And honestly, it was just like going to the pub, only less people were around. I was, I was almost a little disappointed. It, you know, just a few weeks ago, I was in love with that bizarre meme video of of the lads going back to the pub. And you're right. It's like it's like life is being restored with more of a whimper than a bang. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, really bizarre. It's like it was like, oh, had a beer and then I had another one. I was like, okay. I've definitely been at the pub and I went home. It was just very <laughs> weird. Very, very weird. Well, um like- I'm imagining that as life is restoring to a slightly more normal mode, that we've probably all had a lot more time for Quibi now that uh, <laughs> now that <laughs> Quibi out the wazoo. I can't stop. I bless it for being the brunt of a number of jokes over the last few months. Poor, poor Quibi. So remember when we talked about it all those weeks ago, and we were actually excited about the feature where because you watch it on your phone. You can change the um, orientation of your phone and the show would change with it. It was remarkably seamless. It was one of the few things that I thought Quibi was doing that was inventive and unusual apart from, you know, Murder House Flip, obviously. That's all anyone's ever watched. Um, So they've gone and added Chromecast support to it now. Uh, Certainly the iOS app is getting upgraded with Chromecast. I'm like, right. Why do you want to watch it on the big screen when the whole point of it is this one cool feature of watching it however you want to on your phone on the fly? Like you've taken the one thing, Quibi, that I thought made you different and found a way for people not to use that. And what seems kind of – well, I guess there's a lot of the world that isn't coming out of lockdown anytime soon, Um, but, you know, it felt like the kind of feature that they needed right when – it launched because, well, if everybody's kind of stuck, then giving them the options to throw things to different screens might have been more helpful than, you know, if they had launched right in the thick of standard commuting life. <laughs> um, but I feel like the more I have, like, fiddled around with it, and I'm not going to say I've watched much more, but I do keep fiddling with it, trying to search for a purpose in its life. And um, it it kind of does feel like, well, you just sort of end up gravitating to just watching it however you pick it up and mostly it might be that you're vertical because it's just a comfortable way to hold a phone but it's not like it's adding anything to the show to have these sorts of alternating formats and I'm not sure that the alternating screen formats is really the kind of feature that you can hang you know a billion dollar startup uh, Hollywood effort upon (laughs) (laughs) I, no, okay, I'll give you that. You can't. I was certainly excited about it, but you can't. Look, yeah. 
Katzenberg is not taking this well. No. Jeffrey Katzenberg, of course. Um, yeah. I mean, he spent so long at Disney. Quibi was his baby. He has actually said, and I think this is just the most remarkable sentence. This is actually an interview he did with the New York Times. I attribute everything that has gone wrong to coronavirus. Everything. Everything. He's every, literally, that's how he says everything. So he doesn't quibby about the name. He doesn't look at the sharing issues. He doesn't look at the fact that there's just no content on it. Anyone actually seems to want to watch. It's very weird. He's, he's decided it's only coronavirus and God bless you, Jeffrey. I think once, you know, the countries roll out of lockdown, maybe we'll see if you're in any way accurate. Cause here's the flip side to that argument. It's that, you know, mm, let's, let's try to pick some other deeply mobile centric entertainment, uh, app that uh, you know, maybe would have been failing miserably at the moment for exactly the same reasons. Um, so how's TikTok been doing lately? I, you know, is it doing okay? <laughs> Actually, I think it's maybe now like got almost as many users. Like I think it's surging towards hitting a billion users. Like it is so through the roof and it is absolutely entirely about using it on your phone and just casually exploring short clips of things that other people have been doing, but it is about social engagement on one, on a very big level. And I can completely imagine Katzenberg like like just kind of sitting there absolutely fuming over, you know, some amazing dish at some Michelin star restaurant about the fact that like all these <laughs> upstart useless users are creating rubbish content and why don't they understand that what they've really been waiting for is is some Hollywood content delivered four minutes at a time. Four minutes at a time in whatever aspect ratio you want to watch it in. <laughs> uh, see, when TikTok uh, announces their kind of switch it either way mode, I'm like, actually, maybe, maybe he was right. Maybe he was right. <laughs> Katzenberg's going to lose it. It's going to be bad. It's going to be real ugly. <laughs> we should talk eSport, actually. Okay, we um, I assume. Well, I assume that's been taking off a little bit as, as people are spending more time at home and as there's been very little other sport around. And I was interested that uh, QUT, Queensland University of Technology, have a study out. They were looking at the psychological similarities between traditional athletes and eSport athletes and found a hell of a lot in common. In fact, there's even been one of the findings from the researcher, I'm just trying to think of his name, Dylan, Dylan Poulos, Dylan's discovered that he thinks that sports psychologists would be an incredible benefit for esports players. Absolutely, I have to. Uh, yeah, one hundred percent agree with that. From yeah, uh, people I've interviewed and spoken to, and and definitely kind of tracking the news in that space, that the the frequency of esports athletes needing to to quit or to go on mental health leave, like there is so much pressure that these players uh, are dealing with in that sort of high competitive environment, particularly at those elite levels. And it seems like, you know, they haven't necessarily got, you know, a lot of teams have been definitely looking at psychology, sports psychology, all those sorts of things. But it does seem like the support structures are, you know, are still so much different to other kinds of of sports. And, I mean, it, it might even be partly that, you know, that the way – Esports sort of works. There's a very different feeling in traditional sports between the training field and 
and then the big game kind of, you know, opportunity. Whereas it might be partly as well that like so much about the way that the two different modes of play work in esports is, is you know, that it's that same kind of unrelenting pressure in a lot of ways. Um, short of, you know, the highest level of esports where everybody, you know, where you play on stages in stadiums and that's the bit that has had to stop during oh, during the crisis. Um, but, you know, a lot of the different esports have kind of transitioned to online play in ways that traditional sports can't. Um, but, yeah, this seems like a – look, I'm, you know, I'm pleased to see that people are doing this research and working hard to kind of make sure that they build this kind of evidence and hopefully build the kinds of understandings on what those – differences might be that you know that means they do need a slightly different approach to that idea of building mental strength look it's really interesting too because when we talk about that mental strength and we talk about sort of sports psychology this actually opens up the realm for esports people to maybe talk to dietitians uh conditioning coaches i mean you know we are talking about high stress environments what you were putting into your body makes a big difference to that i think we could see a real shift in the way esports people train i mean you and i have both talked about how they um have often done a lot of team training if it's a team esport and i think that's been really interesting to see you know houses being developed where they can live together train together get that team mindset but this is taking that individual conditioning to a next level and i'm really keen to see what shakes out of this yeah and and look you're totally right as well that a lot of that um team house stuff like even it's quite quickly evolving out the other side of the team houses as well because like here in australia i think there's still some team house activity um but you know at the highest levels overseas it's much more now of you know you might they might help you to live somewhere you know nearby but then there is an office and you go to that office like it's a job. So, you know, really creating that separation because, again, they found that, you know, that heightened stress of living where you train and living with the people that you play with, if there's any tensions, there is no escape from it. Um, so trying to create sort of a much more, you know, business mindset around that idea of you come, you train, like they might still do long hours, but that idea of you have a home to leave to in order to then have that separation um, is important. And then, yeah, on the dietitian stuff, again, you're totally right. And um, even locally, you know, I've seen there was actually, there's some players at the elite levels of League of Legends who I remember, you know, five years ago, some of them, you know, a little, a little overweight. Um, and some of those guys have actually taken on themselves and as part of their sort of team effort, have really started to look at sort of diet and conditioning and seeing that, you know, a healthy body is a healthy mind and really trying to take that as a promotional thing too to the to the fans who look up to them as a thing of really emphasizing that idea that you can only play at your best if you're physically well alongside being mentally fit. Look, it's also an evolution of our, um, I think, maturity and understanding of maturity when it comes to just gaming in general. Yeah, great point. Anything that can cut the cords, anything that can cut the cords of that awful stereotype of, you know, the Mountain Dew and the Cheeto dust, which I don't think has been accurate for so long, it's not even funny. Um, this is good. So, yeah, I, I'm completely on board, even outside of that professional sphere. Yeah. Um, and look... Um I, you know, I've been loving seeing how esports has really embraced what is happening right now. Like, I mean, A, they've had to. Everybody's had to. Um, and traditional sports have certainly found it the hardest. But um, watching, 
you know, that the leagues have kind of had to restructure the way they've operated. Um, and I always felt worst for Overwatch League in that this was the year when they were planning the the full touring model of, you know, because everybody, every team is attached to a city somewhere in the world. There's Chinese teams, there's a bunch mm. of American teams, there's European teams. Um, and this was the year where it was going to start traveling city to city and putting on big weekend events, you know, with home and away matches. And, and it, like, they managed to do two weekends at the start of the year and then the rug was pulled out. Um, so... They've kind of only recently, you know, spun back up into having an online league format, um, which has, you know, created its own challenges. But, um, yeah, it's kind of been interesting to see how different sports, you know, whereas meanwhile, I, I love the the thing of the, um, uh, you know, Australian, like the supercars, the, you know, the actual racing ah. has then embraced actually doing an esports version and it's been so successful for them because if you actually flick channels, like you wouldn't even know it's not a real race because the graphics are that good. And um, and they've been able to then invite, you know, celebrity, like, you know, Formula One races to kind of participate on some weekend because it's all online anyway. So that it's not like they have to come to Australia to take part in the race. Um, so it's kind of been awesome seeing all the different ways they've actually managed to, you know, to test out what's possible uh, during this time. And, look, the important thing is we also saw someone cheating during that period, the Formula E driver who actually got dropped by his team, paying money back to charity. He'd hired uh, someone else to drive for him in one of these esports, thinking it didn't matter, not taking it seriously. Yeah. I mean, it was literally like, I'm going to hire someone who was a specialist in sim racing in order to. (laughs) (laughs) It's crazy. It's so dodgy. Yeah, and and you're right. That idea of like going, oh, like it's all just for fun at the moment. It's like no, and I mean, this is the other scary thing. I did see a, a stat sort of quickly yesterday that was suggesting that there's like been a forty time increase in betting on esports at the moment because traditional sports have been off. So you know, and that's one of those areas where it's like you cannot. When there is betting involved, then the door is open to corruption. You cannot. Let anybody not take it seriously. No, absolutely not. So, for a really awkward segue, you know what else Australia is taking seriously at the <laughs> I mean, moment? Or I was going to go with the same idea of, you know what else are taking <laughs> We took our panic buying seriously. I have been stunned. I know you were kind of uh, blown away by this too. We were the world's best panic buyers at the start of the COVID-19 crisis. Oh, I love this so much. I mean, go Aussie. You know, we're, I mean, we're, we're smaller than a lot of other places around the world, Nick, but by golly, if there's a competition on, we want to win it. And in this case, we were the fastest to get to the shops and sell out of toilet paper and canned soup. Um, apparently, were the two things in Australia was the <laughs> fastest in the world to clean out of supermarkets. <laughs> I, I hadn't seen some of these stats. So, like, sales of canned and dry soup, 180% increase. <laughs> Toilet paper, tissue paper doubled. And then we had shortages when it came to flour, rice, and pasta. And we, apparently, the, the exact quote I've seen is, Australian shoppers took it to an extreme level. <laughs> we absolutely eclipsed other countries, both in the speed and the scale. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, we didn't just want to be fast. We wanted to mean it. You know, you got to. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to be serious about it. So what's been curious to me about this, how much of that is still in the home? I mean, I, I freely admit it. I have a lot of cans of tin tomato, which will get used, but they were bought when I was a bit worried about whether we were going to be able to see shops as regularly as we used to. So I've got a lot of that kind of classic, almost student food. I've got tin beans, I've got tin tomatoes, um, some tinned meat because I enjoy that. And that's my choice and no one can take that away from me. <laughs> but I know I'm not going to use it. You know, the toilet paper, I, I didn't panic by that simply because by the time I thought I should, there wasn't any. Um, but yeah. do you people, are people sitting at home with just rolls of bog paper around them with like cupboards that are just full of dried pasta and flour and not knowing what to do with it? Is that where we are? I, I would hazard a guess that, yes, Nick, a lot of households really are in that place. <laughs> I think it will be really interesting to see how the, you know, the shopping stats kind of look in the next couple of months because, of course, there was that thing where it's like, oh, Coles and Woolies have hired lots of new staff because it's been so busy and they've had to be doing all this extra restocking work, all those kinds of things. Um, I can imagine being casual staff that a lot of those people won't be needed um, for much longer or, you know, <sighs> there'll be those cuts because suddenly it's like, oh, actually, there's there's less uh, selling of of staples at the moment because people have stocked up on their staples and that'll see them through the winter. Um, it, it kind of <laughs> feels like we're really in that sort of a place with some of that stuff. It will see us through the winter. I think we could basically hibernate for three months and probably come out with some leftover food <laughs> in the cupboards by the look of this. It's just wild. And not just in supermarkets. One of the other stats I saw, uh, which I hadn't spotted before, online sales grew 16.2% in April, and that's a lot. Yeah, that like, that's a big jump. Absolutely. That's a huge jump. Absolutely mm. huge jump. That's really – because i, I got to admit, I have been shopping more online. I absolutely have. And some of it's been – I've got money kind of left over. I mean, I've been one of those lucky people. My work has continued as my work continues. It's just been where it is. But I'm not out at supermarkets. I'm at supermarkets. I'm not out at restaurants. I'm not out at pubs. And I'm I'm actually ending up with more money uh, at the end of the kind of pay cycle and thinking, well, I can get that sous vide stick or I can, you know, work on building a gym in my shed because I'm also not paying for a gym. How I... Where is that going to go afterwards? How much of a decline? Are we going to go back to the levels where we used to online shop or is that going to stay up or is it going to drop significantly? I think anyone who could be predicting that carefully is bound to make a lot of money in the next few months. Yeah, and look, I think one of the scary bits attached to some of that online shopping stuff as well has been some of the announcements around Australia Post kind of wanting to um, you know, change the delivery cycles as well to sort of focus on packages and they're even trying to talk about, you know, oh, we'll only deliver letters every second day and all this sort of stuff that is, you know, it, it's one of those cases of the fear that are they just trying to use kind of this time period as an excuse to make cuts and changes um, because I think some of the, I think the, you know, the union involved is saying that there will be, you know, potentially 25% job losses um, under a new delivery model, all that kind of stuff. Um, 
but that in the end, there's no question that you know package deliveries has has gone through the roof, and and that's been a steady thing over recent years. Um, I feel like in a lot of ways it comes back to that idea that you know that a lot of these changes are things that maybe some of these trends would have just kept steadily going where they've gone for a few more years, but then we've kind of shortened that cycle with what's just happened, and we're seeing you know whether that's with with the workplace and accepting more working from home or having more online meetings, all those things that would have been the slow boil have just kind of shot past where they might settle, mm. but they won't settle back to you know, the norms that they used to be. We're also seeing a hell of a lot of change just generally in the world, I think on the back of the Black Lives Matter movement, um, both locally, the kind of protests around um, police brutality, uh, deaths in Indigenous custody. Um, it's been really intriguing to see the fact that these protests are actually having uh, a genuine effect. We're seeing police budgets slashed. We're seeing Minneapolis actually saying they're going to completely defund their police and, and start from scratch. But one of the more unexpected effects that has just come out of nowhere for me, Cops, the TV show, has been cancelled and I'm not sad to see it go. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's right. Like the, it's been such a weird form of entertainment and absolutely the kind of entertainment that in the end, you, yeah, you sort of looking back, you realise, well, it's it's kind of framed around putting them in a positive light and in sort of, denigrating oh. the people that they're arresting for whatever reason it might be. Yeah. 33 seasons it's been running for, wow. which blew my mind. It started in 90, yeah, 1989. It was on Fox. Uh, 25 years it was on there. Then it got, I think, taken up by Spike TV, which then became Paramount TV. And now Paramount TV basically said it's not on our network and we have no plans for it to return. It is done it is dusted. It is over. I mean, it's funny to think back on, it feels like one of the first great parodies I saw on the internet was um, oh, the Star Wars Troops. troops. Um, oh. And it was that reframing of the whole incident on Tatooine with Uncle Ben and Aunt Beru and um, that, yes, the the kind of whole idea that actually the maybe the stormtroopers weren't the people who, you know, killed them and all this kind of stuff that in its own way now you sort of look back at that and go, well, yeah, that if they've got the cameras, they get to reframe whatever might take place. Um, yeah. So, I mean, but that really was. It's like that's maybe that's the only episode ever of something like Cops that is worth watching. <laughs> Yeah, look, Trips was amazing for the time. Um, I haven't watched it in a long time. There were special effects and everything. To see. Oh, it was wild. It was absolutely wild. Um, look, not sorry to see cops go. The one that people are finding a little more controversial is that Little Britain has been removed from all UK streaming platforms because of the blackface in it. Yeah, right. And, look, I, could, I mean, I, I haven't read this story. I could only imagine that... David Williams and Matt Lucas are probably like, yeah, you know, that's a different time and we wouldn't do that if we were going to do that kind of thing. You know, that's not really today's comedy anymore. So feel free to move on. 
Look, Matt Lucas has said that in the past. He he has yeah, right. said if I could go back and do it again, I would not be doing that style of jokes and I most certainly wouldn't be playing black characters. I think a lot of this is coming on the wave of concerns around transphobia in the UK, which, of course, has been a big topic on Twitter recently, thanks to JK Rowling. Um, and there was a reasonable level of that in Little Britain. It absolutely has to be said. Um, I have seen a lot of tweets today about how this is censorship and all that sort of rubbish. Um, I think this is a very interesting way for the BBC to go. Mm. Um, uh, and they've basically said they've taken it down, and the quote is, because times have changed. They have basically said the style of comedy, which maybe flew back in 2000 or whenever it was actually formed, I think they formed it, uh, started showing it in 2000, I have to look that up, um, just doesn't fly now. And I think that's really important. We do need to recognise that. And I don't think there's a censorship to taking it off uh, streaming services. I'm sure if you loved it so much you can't bear to be without it, you've probably got a DVD copy of it somewhere. It's not being wiped from history. It's just being less accessible. Yeah. And, look, Disney even, um, you know, was asked about whether what's one of their old kind of uh, animated films, Song of the South, I think it was. Yeah, they were asked, yeah, will that ever be put onto Disney Plus? And Eisner straight up just went, no, no, it's a relic of history and we don't need to, like, yes, you know, you can have all your debates about, you know, oh, well, it's good to kind of look back on, you know, on things and study them for their, you know, what they represented of a time and sort of look at them in the negative, but he was just like, this is an entertainment service and we don't feel like that needs to be part of this platform ever. And yeah, I think there's kind of, there's a, a positive aspect of moving forward with some of these things. It's not, again, it's not denying their history. It's not, you know, I mean, Disney has issues with the fact that they keep re-editing things, you know, and there've been bits and pieces <laughs> taken out of stuff that are on there. It's like, that feels more like, a kind of, you know, of trying to wash over what what something used to be compared to what it is now. I mean, I'm sure that's its own debate, right? Do you do you take out the bits, you know, do you take out the episodes of Little Britain that people, you know, were more worried about rather than removing all of it? Like there's kind of lots of interesting angles there on because in some ways that almost feels more like censorship because someone might think I've seen everything there is to see of this rather than the idea that well, this is something that just isn't on this platform anymore and you can find it somewhere else if you really want to. Look, certainly I don't think there's an argument to be made that there is historical interest in preserving comedy blackface. I, I <laughs> genuinely believe that. I would not be sorry to see the back of a lot of Chris Lilly's comedy, yes. especially Jonah from Tonga. I would not be sorry to see that gone off streaming services at all. That's my opinion. I'm sticking to it. I'm very comfortable with this happening with Little Britain as well. Uh, people say, oh, they're tearing down statues and stuff like that. Nothing, none of this changes history. Yeah. It changes the accessibility to honouring or worshipping people that don't deserve that. And and I'd put this in that boat in a very weird way. Right. It, it always feels like that thing of trying, you know, you can't just easily put a caption on the screen under some of this stuff and go, which way are you laughing at it right now? Are, do you, you know, is there an ironic way that you're laughing at it or do you just not get that this is inappropriate and that that's, and you're just laughing at it? You know, like there's so many awkward aspects to that stuff that does mean it feels like on a 
modern streaming service for today. It's, you know, it's the people who own the rights to this stuff who, you know, can take a stand and say, we don't need to distribute this in this way anymore. And, you know, there's plenty of other great comedy still available on these services um, to enjoy. You don't have to go and hunt down these specific uh, options. No, exactly. And look, plenty of things that still don't have a license yet. Why can't I stream Manimal anywhere? This has been bothering me for a long time. I love Manimal. I want to stream it. I want to watch it. You know what I did just recently discover? This is like, I I don't think I've said it on Biteside. Quantum Leap (laughs) is on Nine Now. All of it. it's really weird. And it's like I was I was just shocked when I was flicking around. I think we'd watched like some I think that's right it had Survivor on on it and so that's how we'd been watching the last season of Survivor. And then flicking around something is like, "Oh my god, all of Quantum Leap is here." I'm like, "Why haven't they put up ads on billboards to say Quantum Leap is available?" Because I've been wondering where it was going to land and then suddenly it's like, "Oh yeah, we've just got it in our archives. No big deal." <laughs> why why has Quantum Leap not been rebooted? Yeah. I mean, that's a fascinating Look, and there is a show that I mean, boy did it deal with um, you know, Big issues stuff. of gender and race and all these things in really interesting ways because it wasn't, it didn't need to kind of go, oh, like, let's put him in blackface. It was like, oh, he looks in the mirror and realizes that he is, you know, whoops, I'm I'm this person in the midst of this situation. Um, this is not going to go well for me. And now let's all have a bit of a lesson in why history is a really rubbish place sometimes. Um, so man, like I'm actually really looking forward to watching that show with my kids. It's one of my all time favorites, um, from, you know, the end of the eighties. And I think it finished in around 91, something like that. But yeah, man, I'm really, really excited that it's actually available. When was Quantum Leap set? I've got the shocking idea that Quantum Leap was actually set in the nineties. So yeah, like, because I always remember there was a there was a question mark around the fact that he could only travel within his own lifetime within that was his sort of time travel window um and so I think it had the futuristic aspect to it, but he could only go back as far as I think the late forties or early fifties, so I guess it was technically meant to be yeah. the nineties, yeah, because he must have been you know forty something in the show I mean it's always tricky to work that stuff out um. But, yeah, anyway, there's one for you. A, a positive tip. Go and catch up on Quantum Leap on uh, on 9 now. Please do. And enjoy the fact that it starts, Sam starts his journey of leaping in Quantum Leap in 1995. Hey, there we go. The heady future of 1995. Yeah, when we've solved the burrito <laughs> model of time travel. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I have, uh, you know, I, I don't really have a segue here, um, but, well, it does in, in fitting into this whole question of getting, uh, you know, racial bias and diversity right in newsrooms as well as in all other forms of media. Um, Microsoft has recently made the decision to fire hundreds of editors in its MSN uh, newsrooms uh, in all the locations that it's had those kinds of uh, newsrooms set up in favour of getting AI to do the curation for its service because the way... Sure. Yeah. I mean, look, it's going to work. It's going to work. Trust me. Wait, sure. Actually, in a moment, I'm going to tell you why you shouldn't trust me. Um, 
the you know, the whole service has been based on the idea that you know that they curate other news websites and then they share the revenue for any advertising that appears on that. So and you know, I think it's been that classic thing where the MSN has been the default uh, homepage for browsers on Windows computers. So that was uh, I actually remember at an awards night many moons ago for the web industry uh, here in Australia when, you know, uh, somebody sort of stood there on stage, I think Microsoft might have been sponsoring and they were talking about how, you know, their homepage was the number one news website in Australia. And, of course, the room audibly laughed because it's like, well, if if the homepage is the default page that everybody's internet browser goes to when they turn on their browser, you're going to get a lot of traffic. <laughs> yeah, a lot of traffic. Yeah. But look, you know, having that idea of a curation model um, and then sharing revenue, you know, totally makes sense for their kind of thing. But now they're saying we don't need humans to do that editing anymore. So um, the humans are in the process of being removed from the system. Um, But just a few days ago, uh, the AI managed to use an incorrect photo of um, a member of a pop group. I can't remember the name of the pop group. I'm sorry, it's I'm out of touch on all things pop. I uh, know we've got the link here. Um, yeah, thank you, Guardian, for giving us a little story. Mix, wasn't little it? mix, yeah. Um, and yeah, so there's two mixed race members of the band, um, and the AI managed to yeah put the, a photo of one against a story about the other. And it's also it's the kind of thing that humans still get wrong a lot, and that's a big part of you know all of these debates about having more diverse. Uh, newsrooms it's like these are the kinds of dumb errors that happen because of a lack of diversity even just the cultural diversity of actually like knowing who these people are and in these bands but you know in this case it was an ai because the story actually mentions that this happens to these two um you know it's happened more than once over the years and they're pretty sick of it uh but then an ai has managed to screw it up this time and of course it, it took a human stepping in to then fix it um but the bit of this story that I think is really fascinating is then because there are still humans involved, uh, the bosses send down word that um, the editors need to watch out for the fact that the AI might decide that the Guardian's story, because Guardian had contacted them for comment, that you know that the uh, the Guardian story might be picked by the AI as interesting and put into their new system which is a negative story about Microsoft moving to an AI-based system, saying, please, an editor will need to delete this, and that the AI might override you and try to post it again. (laughs) So you'll need to watch for it a second time. (laughs) I think that's what blows my mind is the lack of oversight on the AI. Just this acceptance that, well, yes, we'll let some humans do a few things, but the AI gets a third go at it if it needs to. It's like, what, what? And that, yeah, that they have no system to kind of just, you know, just blacklist a story before it gets into their system. They, you know, they have a system that means the AI is always right. And you then have to say the AI is wrong. (laughs) The AI is always right until it is wrong. But it is never wrong until you tell it it's wrong. (laughs) 
But What's yeah. mostly terrifying about this is in an age where we are seeing journalists lose their jobs, um, where my own organisation is desperately trying to work out how to cut maybe around 200 people yeah. at the moment, which is just really significant. We've got companies like Microsoft trying to do this with AI and I think in a very strong way proving that it is no replacement. But we know we'll still keep losing journalism jobs. Yeah. And look, I actually wrote a column for the IT Journal website today actually about this, pointing out that the big thing here for me is that an AI is, in this context, an AI is always shooting for good enough that for Microsoft in this curation model, they just need speed and scale and it's all about efficiency and they're like, oh, a few mistakes along the way. You know, we can we can have a handful of staff involved with just checking rather than actually being the ones who actively go out and curate stories. Um, and the thing that always worries me is that publishers and bosses of media companies have stopped shooting for better than good enough. And in that sense, then we're then they will never be proving why humans will be better than AI. It's like when you keep cutting things, when you keep kind of making it just about bland, really basic detail, kind of factual reporting that isn't actually about, you know, doing great like investigation and and real kind of human qualities to the way in which you're engaging with what's happening in the news and finding unique angles on news, not just, you know, the whole kind of stenographer type discussion when it comes to politics, um, that it's like we need to have the bosses of media companies seeing that that good enough is is the utterly generic version. And it's like if you want people to care about what you are producing, then you need it to be more personal and have the kind of human qualities attached to it. It's indicative of the limitations I think we can expect in in a lot of AI. You know, always think of um, uh, driver assist, self driving cars. They're amazing if you say, "Take me here the quickest way." But if you said to an AI car, "Take me the scenic route," it's going to lose it. It can't do that because it's not going to know what that means subjectively to you. And look, there was, I mean, a great example that really does fit into this same mold of like an AI getting it wrong with picking news. Um, there was footage of a Tesla on a freeway in, like, I think it was in China, um, but a truck had overturned on the freeway and the person sitting at the wheel of this Tesla was letting it drive on autopilot and was clearly paying so little attention that they didn't notice that this car was basically going full steam towards a truck that was overturned and it did oh, slam into the like the roof of thank you know, i think it was probably thankful that the truck had flipped so that it was the top of the truck facing towards the oncoming car rather than you know all the kind of metal axle structures underneath but it was exactly the kind of thing where you're like this is not an object that the you know that the car the self-driving system would have really ever encountered before. It's like a weird flat white wall that probably blended with just the idea of, well, it's just plain sailing in front of you, you know. And so the person hit the brakes, but way too late. Um, but it's definitely that idea of, you know, 
clearly, if a human's paying attention in that thing way, way earlier than any AI, it's going to go, well, there's something weird on the road up ahead. I'm getting the hell out of here, you know? And, yeah. <laughs> and like three lanes across, there were other cars still just kind of carefully filing by. Um, so there's so much of this edge case problem that it's like, it's not going to be just around the corner that AI magically solves these problems. And it's like, it's it's not that many years since Microsoft went, hey, Twitter, well, meet Tay. We're just going to like let you guys teach this AI how to be a human, uh. how to be a, a member of this glittering social media society. And within hours, she was a terrible racist. Um, so, <laughs> you know, it's like we need to realize that it's not going to be a quick solution that magically turns this all into like, oh, the AI fairyland has arrived. It's like we still need humans, especially when it comes to news and especially in such a politically heated time as this. I can't tell if that's a cheery note or a depressing <laughs> note. I just don't know anymore. So shall we leave it there? Yeah, let's leave it there and we'll, we'll let the readers just... Readers. Yeah, readers, uh, <laughs> listeners, um, all those things, whatever way that you're consuming this, you could be reading it if you're using a machine translation device of some kind, I imagine. So, you know, there's always that. Um, there is always that. But, of course, it's going to get some of the words wrong. So I hope this wasn't a spaghetti fest of weird words. If you used a machine to translate this audio into text for you, um, Nick, where can people find you this week? Uh, track me down on social media. On Twitter, I'm Dr. Nick. That's at dr underscore nic. Or as always, I'm on Facebook. It's just Nick Healy. Grab me. Excellent. I'm at Seamus on Twitter and at uh, Byteside or at the Byteside on Instagram and slash Byteside on Facebook. And you can email us via Ask at biteside.com. Uh, there's a really cool episode on high resolution today. Well, maybe you're hearing this later. Anyway, it's up now. Um, I did an interview with the head of uh, Gameloft Brisbane, the uh, game studio up there. And it was one of the better uh, interviews that we've had recently on high resolution because Dylan um, Miklashek, who did that, was super honest about kind of the state of the games industry. They had to... Uh, you know, lose a lot of people from their studio at the end of last year. We sort of got to talk quite honestly about sort of why that happened, about, you know, but that overall he kind of feels like the Australian games industry has a really strong future. Um, and, yeah, just the challenges of, of working in that space right now and being part of, you know, one of the big global game companies um, but running a cool studio here in Australia. And he's like a Canadian uh, who moved to Australia. So when he talks about why he thinks Australia is a great place, you kind of get, no, it's not purely parochial, uh, <laughs> but that he actually does have a genuine opinion about why this is a really cool place uh, to live and work in, especially in that kind of an industry. So, yeah, cool one to go and check out. But, yes. Very, very cool. Nick, have a good one, and we will catch you again real soon. Mm -hmm.